Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37 is where we'll be. I remember the first time that my parents took me to church. I was not raised in church as a kid. Uh, we went on Easter Sunday and my grandmother's homecoming and some of those things. And I remember the one of the first times I went, um, we went to a church right down the street from our house. And when we walked in, we noticed uh, there was something unique about the service. And, they, and it actually learned later that, that they were doing communion that Sunday. And most churches don't do communion like we do, where we, you know, you have two stations in the back and two up front, and you come up and take it. Like most of the churches they have where the deacons come up after the service and they take the little shot glasses and pass them out and the wafers and they pass them out and then you, you take each element as it goes. And so uh, this particular Sunday they were doing communion. I didn't know what communion was. All I saw was there was a table in front of the stage that sat up about this high, and it had a cover on it. And apparently, I could tell by the shape of the cover, the, the white sheet, um, that there was something underneath that. And so here I am thinking, okay, this table was about six foot long, and it's bumpy, and there's a white sheet over it. The first thing I thought of as a kid was, there's a dead body under there. There's a dead body under there. And I'm just sitting there going, I didn't say anything to my dad. I was like, okay, I've been to funerals before. I've seen a casket up front. This is just some, but there's a dead body in the service. And then I remember at the end of the service, when, we, when communion was about to take place, um, the pastor got up and he says, now the deacons are going to take, we're going to do communion. I didn't know what communion was. And he says, and they're going to serve the body. And I'm like, they're going to cut the person up underneath the sheet and serve it out to people. I, how is this legal? Like, I remember thinking, like, and I was a, I'm, I'm a weird kid, right? Like, I'm thinking through this, and like, so what does it mean to serve? And then, okay, and my, I explained to my dad, says, okay, the, we are the body. The church is called the body. Oh, the church is the body. Okay. Well, so I started to get, I started to see that. And so every time I hear this phrase, over and over again, like, the body of Christ, I think of that strange picture that happened. And so here at Integrity, if you're new, I'm going to talk about serving the body. And when I talk about the body, I'm talking about believers, like people who are alive, okay? I'm talking about people who are alive. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at what does it mean to serve the body? What does it mean to serve one another? We're going to see that in this passage. We're going to see this wonderful display of what it means to serve. And so this morning is, is going to be a little bit unique. I'm going to make, I'm going to look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. I'm going to make some brief observations. And, and what I want to do is this morning, I want to celebrate how there are people who are faithfully serve each of you every single Sunday here at Integrity. And we want to celebrate that as a church. And then uh, I'm going to preach a short sermon. I know that you think that means 40 minutes for me. But I promise you it will be a short sermon. And then we're going to talk about just some real practical ways uh, that we can serve as a church. And we're going to hear uh, about some ways we want to move forward in how we serve. And so we're going to see that in the text this morning. But then I'll, we'll show a video. We'll have some people come up here at the end and we'll walk you through it. So in the book of Acts, this is what we see. We see a church that is filled with joy and it's growing rapidly. But yet we're told in Acts 4 that their life was not any easier. Just because their church was growing, their life was not easy. In fact, their life was very difficult. Um, they were recently persecuted in Acts chapter 4, and we see the apostles, Peter and John, they were 
seeing threats from the religious elite, and they were told never to preach in the name of Jesus again. They were arrested, and they were threatened, and they were beaten for the sake of the gospel. And we see Peter and John as like the leaders of this early church. And Peter and John, as the leaders, are now taken away from their body, and now they're let, released, and now they get to see their church again. And what happens is we see this, this growth of the church, but we also see their incredible faith, that even in the face of persecution, even in the face of their lives could be threatened, their faith increases. They actually pray for God to give them more boldness, and boldness is what got them in this persecution in the first place. And then what you begin to see is even in the face, listen, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of their lives being threatened, the church was united like it never was before. And so we're going to see this wonderful picture of this unity that takes place and then how the church serves one another. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. I'll start reading verse 32. It says this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It's a very important phrase. We'll get back to that in just a moment. One heart and soul. No one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given, giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, they brought them to the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite by the name of, by the native, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What do you see here is this church that even in the face of persecution, they're united and they learn how to serve and love each other. You have this radical generosity that even uh, their possessions, when they would sell, sell their things or give their things away, they did that so that no one would go without. No one would go without. And we even see this happen in the end of Acts chapter 2. And I think what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 4, that this doesn't stop even in the face of persecution. And so we see Barnabas. Barnabas, this is the first time he shows up in the book of Acts. We'll look at him later on as we continue in this series in Acts. Uh, we see this. He's, this is the first thing that we know about him. He sells land so that someone would, not, so, so that someone would uh, cease from going hungry. And selling land wasn't like in our culture where some might buy land for investment. No, selling land would have been like selling your retirement or your children's inheritance. Now, how does this happen? How does a church become this generous? What would motivate them to serve in this way? Well, we'll think about for a moment what motivates us to serve. What often motivates us to serve is we serve because there's a need. We serve because there's a need. And oftentimes in integrity, this is the way we communicate the reason why you should serve. We say, here's the need in front of you. We need 
people to serve in the kids' ministry. We need people to help with set up or tear down or hospitality. We need these things. We need money for the building to pay off. We need money to support a church planner. We tell you the need, and that becomes the issue. That becomes your motivating factor. There's such a need here. But needs, as important as they are to communicate and be open and transparent about, they're still not sustainable enough to motivate you and I to be generous and to serve. Sometimes we think about we serve because it makes us feel good. I see this all the time at churches. You see people who are busybodies. They just love to serve wherever and be involved in anything and serve in anywhere. And oftentimes I even see people do that as an escape to make themselves feel better, to avoid issues in their heart. Serving obviously can be a wonderful, uh, 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 feeling good can often be a wonderful byproduct of serving. However, it still cannot be the motivating factor for why we serve. I see people feel, um, they, they serve because they feel guilty if they don't. And oftentimes this is where pastors like me come in and try to make you feel bad for not serving. You even have the story, that an old preacher story of the man who went to heaven, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus is showing him around where he's going to live. And what does he do? He takes him to the big mansion. Where's the big mansion? No, that's not your house. Takes him to a, a mansion that's even smaller than the first mansion. No, that's not your house. And then all the way down to a little shack at the end of the road, right? For the story. What's that? That's your house. Why are you moving to that house? Why am I moving to that house? When Jesus says, well, I have to do something with the money that you gave me, right? And that becomes the reason why you should give. Because you feel bad about it. Feel bad. I feel horrible. Now I need to give. But is that sustaining? I mean, if I really want to give you a heart for orphans in Africa. That has to be something that God does in your life. Or I can make you feel bad by showing you a bunch of stories of starving kids in Africa on the screen. I could do that and you would feel guilty and you would give for a moment, but you would forget about it a week from now. Because guilt does not sustain us. So it's none of these things. We see, okay, we give because there's a need. We serve because there's a need. We we give or serve because it makes us feel good or it makes us feel guilty. But none of these things, listen, none of these things are the reasons why these people were so generous in Acts. None of these things. They're not driven by guilt. They're not driven because they want to be great humanitarians. They're not doing it because there's these over, not just because there's overwhelming needs. Rather, there is something motivating them that is far more inspiring and sustaining. And that's what I want to see it, us to see in the text. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. What motivated them? Part of why they were motivated together is because of what it says. They were one mind and soul. Some of your one heart and soul. Some of your translations say one mind. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, you see this as at the heart of so many New Testament writers. Almost every New Testament writer captures this idea of believers being of one mind, one heart, one soul. 
You see the way that Paul, when he opens up his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God is faithful who has called you into a fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what I say to you, and there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly, what's the word? United in mind and thought. How does he want to unite this dysfunctional body in 1 Corinthians? He says, I want you to be united in one mind and one thought. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter's writing to a church that's scattered and in disarray because they're facing persecution. He writes this in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, all of you, church, be like-minded, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. How do we love one another? He says, you have to be like-minded. You have to be like-minded. Jesus, even in his prayer and his high priestly prayer in John 17, when Jesus prays for his disciples, then he prays for all believers throughout the ages. What does Jesus pray for? He says it in John 17, verse 22. I have given the glory that you gave me, that they meaning us, may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete. What's the word? What's the word? Unity. <laughs> one. Good try. Appreciate your, yeah, good try. Um, be brought to complete unity. Is that not up there? Um, is it not up there? Okay. It's John 17. I thought I was, okay. Then, I'll keep reading it. <laughs> then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What does Jesus want to pray when you look it up later? Um, he prays for us that we would be one. He prays for us that we would be one. So we have Paul, we have Peter, we have, we have the early church in Acts. What is the, the motive behind the church? They want to be one. So what does it mean for the church to be one or having the same mind? Well, some will argue that this means that we become more of a tolerant culture. We just embrace everyone's differences and learn to tolerate different belief systems. And it's this sort of naive, idealistic idea that everyone needs to celebrate the differences and that will make everyone get along does that ever work no even within the church there's this attitude that as long as we believe in jesus that's what matters it's not true it sounds good it kind of preaches but it's not true job's witnesses and mormons they say they believe in jesus they're not true no, so the Bible matters. Truth matters. And additionally, over and over and over again, the church, the body of Christ, is called to be like-minded. This is why here at Integrity, when we support a missionary, or we support a church planter, or we support other churches, we support like-minded churches because we believe that truth matters because truth unites other believers. And God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order. 
And we're told over and over and over again that it's truth that brings believers together. And Paul captures this very well. When Paul talks about equipping the saints and us being equipped so that we can do the good work of evangelists and go and share the gospel, he actually captures this very same idea. Ephesians 4, verse 11 says this, and he gave, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that's important. We want to be equipped so that we can be sent out for the sake of the gospel. Then he goes on, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's how we're equipped. We grow in truth together. And that's how we gain unity. And then he goes, um, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How are we going to love each other? Having the same mind, having the same heart, having the same soul, striving for truth together. Because striving for truth together means that we begin to have the mind of Christ and we begin to think like God. And because we think like God, we love like God loves. And because we love like God loves, we will call then to love each other. And so it's so important that we strive for truth because truth always, striving for truth when it pertains to matters of our heart, it changes the way that we treat each other. And so this is how this church was striving for the same thing because they had the same mind, same heart, the same soul. But then we'll see the motivating factor behind it all. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Now the text shows us the motivating factor. It was the grace that was upon them that motivated them to live this way and being generous and serving. That's what caused them to be generous. So what's the motivating factor? It's grace. It was their understanding of the gospel that calls them to serve. It wasn't guilt. It wasn't just needs-based. It wasn't because it made them feel good. It was all about grace. Grace was the motivating factor behind anything that the early church did. Anything. It was their understanding of the grace that was given to them through Christ. And what's interesting, this becomes a staple that we see throughout the New Testament. When Paul talks about the generosity of the Macedonian church and how they gave even in their poverty, 
I love the way that Paul communicates this because he doesn't brag necessarily on how generous this church was who gave even in their poverty. He actually just says they gave because they understood the gospel. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. How did you and I become rich in God? Because Jesus Christ became poor for us. Jesus Christ came and left his rightful place at the right hand of God, came down into this earth and was born of a virgin as a little baby in a poor town. He grew up and lived his life in poverty, but he also was tempted in every way as we have been tempted, yet without sin. How was he crucified? He was crucified as a crook and a criminal, even though he was innocent. He died in our place for our sins, and he resurrected from the grave, and he conquered the penalty of our sin and death. Jesus became poor so that we would become rich in Christ, so that we, but God, can look at us who were sinners, who were alienated from God, can look at us and say, you are my son, you are my daughter. You were bought with a price, and that price was my one and only beloved son. Jesus Christ became poor so that you and I would become rich. And how do we respond to this generosity that God has given us? Well, then everything that we do is based on that truth. So how do we want others to become rich in Christ? We become poor so that they can become rich in Christ. It means we live our lives, as what Paul says in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. And so I'm going to go without so that someone would go have wealth in Christ. I'm going to serve someone so they could see the generosity in my life so that hopefully the generosity in my life would lead to them seeing the grace that only God can give. And this is what you see in, 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 in this passage. I mean, notice what else happens. It says, great power came upon them and they testified This is exactly what you see in Acts chapter 1 when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. What happened when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church? They just wanted to be, they wanted to give testimony of the resurrection of Christ. And now we see a practical way that you and I can give testimony of the risen Christ. We serve others. We become poor so that others will become rich. And it's very challenging. We, we hear that message and we go, oh, I'm not going to become poor. I don't want to lose what I have. I don't want to give up. What, I don't want to give up my time, my money, my resources, everybody. This, thing, this is the greatest apologetic that we could ever have is being generous to a lost and dying world and even to those around us. And this is what calls this church to be united. They said we understand the gospel in this way and it's an overflow of our heart that will live and be generous. So everything in this text is really this. We have the same Holy Spirit that they were given in Acts. The same Holy Spirit that called them to, be, to, be, to testify of the resurrection of Christ, we're given that same Spirit. And everything in this passage, by the way, is really just how a believer lives their life in response to the gospel. They live generous lives. And so this, my question is this. 
How are you living out the gospel, believer? How is the gospel compelling you to serve others? Thankfully, we have a church that I believe is generous. We've seen many of you respond to the gospel in this way. I've seen many of you who serve in a variety of ways. Some of you serve after-school programs of children in need who are struggling and you tutor them. Some of you have served through our Serve Greenville project. Some of you have gone overseas and shared the gospel to unreached people groups. Some of you have served through your life groups. You've served people in your, or small groups, sorry, small groups. Some of you have served people in your small groups or maybe some of your small groups have adopted different groups in Greenville that are in need and you've served in those ways. And those are wonderful ways to serve. And we want to celebrate some of those ways that God is what God is doing in the lives of people in integrity. But what I, what I want you to see this morning is that even on Sunday morning, there are people who faithfully serve. Every single Sunday, it takes 74 volunteers to make a 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service happen. Right now, but we have between 400 and 500 people attend, attending integrity on, on Sunday morning, and there's uh, 150 of you who serve on a volunteer team right now. And I want you to realize how each of you who serve, how it ties into the mission and vision of integrity, how it leads to maturing and multiplying believers to leave a gospel legacy, which is our mission statement. And so what I want you to see is the opportunities that we have here at Integrity to serve. And I want you to see, and I want us to celebrate those who are serving and hear about how our philosophy is of serving others and why it ties back into the gospel. And so this morning, we've just provided a video for you to see of what it means to serve faithfully here at Integrity and how it ties into our mission. And then Todd and I will come up and we'll introduce you to somebody who we believe uh, serves our, our church very well. So we're going to watch that video now. Every Sunday, we meet together as a church with the purpose of worshiping God and growing in our walk with Christ. Because church isn't a building or a meeting place, it's a body of people. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. One of the ways we worship Jesus is by serving each other. How do we do that, and why is it important to serve? There's a lot of serving that goes into each service. There's people that get up early every Sunday to make sure everything is set up, whether it be pictures on the wall, or a tent outside, or even the sign in the front. There's quite a bit that needs to be done. There's people that greet you every time you come in, and people that will welcome anyone new with information about our church and a gift, and above all, getting the chance to know you. There's people who get here early to make your coffee, because let's face it, although it's not a necessity, mornings just aren't the same without it. There's people who lead our worship and help make things a little less awkward when we hear a self-singing. There's people that no one probably notices because they're in a booth changing the slides to the music we sing or the Bible verses we read. There's people who stay for both services so that at one of them they can be in the service, and the other, they can love your kids well and steward them in the gospel while you have some downtime to hear the word. And after the second service, 
There's people who stay late to tear everything back down. So whether it be our kids team, hospitality team, counting team, worship team, setup team, tear down team, media team, or just someone helping out with something extra, there's something all of these teams have in common. People. People serving God by serving each other. And even though these may seem like small tasks, it's a way the body, the church, can work together for the good of making Jesus known. After all, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's give it up for those guys. Some stuff. Aubrey's videos always make me want to cry, so thank you. Um, hey, um, we want to introduce you to somebody. Uh, this is Hal Holloman. Um, Hal and his wife Blair and their whole family, uh, they serve every single Sunday. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Hal actually serves uh, as a volunteer coordinator here uh, at Integrity. And uh, how um, we, this has been something in the works now for uh, a couple months, he's been in this role, and the whole reason why he's in this role is to um, help those who are serving connect with the mission and vision of Integrity Church. And so, how I'm just going to ask you a few questions. First of all, um, tell us a little bit about your role as a volunteer coordinator and what, what that entails. Yeah, so my, my role is to basically serve and support those various teams and those and the team leaders or co-leaders of those teams. So uh, praying for them, encouraging them, problem solving, serving as a gopher um, for juice or bread or, what you know, things like that. Uh, and then also connecting with small group leaders so that as we have needs, um, just, just sharing and encouraging people to sort of live on mission, uh, missional living ways, letting small group leaders share with the small groups that, hey, these are, these are opportunities where you can share and, and serve the body. Why don't you tell us a little bit about our philosophy and how we serve here in Integrity, what that yeah, means. Yeah, so, so traditionally, if you've been to church, um, a lot of volunteer schedules look like a rotation where, hey, come on, everybody, everybody sign up and you'll only have to serve once a quarter or once a month. And, and although, the, I mean, that works. There's value in a schedule like that. And it, it seems to convey some sharing, right, of, of the weight of the volunteering. Um, but the shift we've done over the last several months and, and, the, and the leaders and the elders that have been a big part of this is that in terms of missional living, we, we get to serve the body. You know, Ben's just been sharing that we, we get to serve the Lord by serving the body. We get to. And so, you know, I know many of us are the, the desire to serve overseas, uh, international missions or, you know, outside of Greenville, outside of Pitt County. But, but wow, local mis- missions, an opportunity to serve on Sundays, to serve the body, to serve non-believers, to serve visitors and guests and family from out of town, different things like that. So we get to do that. So the philosophy now is 
to serve one, since we have two services, 9 a.m. and 11, to serve at one and attend one. So you attend one, and you worship and hear God's word while other people are serving, right, to, to help provide that. But then the other, you serve one. And so you saw all those teams, hospitality team, integrity kids, accounting team, the media team, the worship team, the, uh, I'm, I'm missing several, sorry, the setup team, the teardown team. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we're encouraging is if you, if you see, well, you know, I, I, I want to serve at one, but I don't want to, you know, that'll be my Sunday for going to church. Well, we just really want to encourage you to reconsider that and see Sunday mornings as an opportunity to serve the Lord and serve the local body. What are some of the victories that you've seen since we've done this? Um, we've been at it a few months now, attending one and serving one. It will, you were saying that Aubrey's videos almost make you cry or make you want to cry. Well, it did make me cry. I mean, it's just moving to see God working through the lives of so many people. And so when I, when I see some of the people on that, on that video, I just think about the last several months and their lives and their personal stories and uh, what God's doing in their lives. And so, um, you know, for example, uh, we joked about the coffee up there and laughed about the coffee. I mean, but Jonathan Morgan Parrish, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and they're a young couple, newlyweds, and, um, you know, to think about them getting up and serving arm-in-arm, shoulder-to-shoulder together as a couple, it's an encouragement to see, and uh, to see them get up that early and brew the coffee, and, you know, I was, I was uh, a few weeks ago back there, and uh, Morgan was propped up against Jonathan, and they were just chatting, and just, nobody was back there, they were just enjoying each other's company and, to, and serving the body in that way. Uh, and then to see others in the video, Callie and Jean Ann, you know, have been so faithful at the front door um, and, and serving on the hospitality team in that way. And Luke and Lauren Stevens, you know, one of the, one of the unintentional outcomes of a rotational system is that, is that, you know, you see this one, if a couple comes and brings their family to Integrity Kids, they see, you know, hey, this couple's on the first Sunday great experience next Sunday oh it's another couple okay the next Sunday it's another couple but to see you know Luke and Lauren Stevens just a sweet young married couple um, and they've been over, over after several months been able to build strong relationships and to serve each to serve together as a couple um, to serve the body in that way to get to know not just the kids and, and share the gospel with them but to also build gospel-centered relationships with those families month after month, week after week. So um, those are all great victories. Praise God for this. It's awesome. Thanks for doing it. My role this morning really is to kind of talk about uh, the role of deacon. And that, this morning we are going to inst- install Hal as a deacon. Um, really our, our church structure here at Integrity Church is we are elder-ruled, elder-led. Uh, ben, myself, and Kirk are the three elders of Integrity Church. Kirk could not be here uh, this morning. But I just want to kind of lay that out for you and help you understand what a deacon is. Uh, a deacon is someone who serves in our body, uh, whether there's a specific role that we need to be met, uh, that we see them serving well in, and that it's really a, a high responsibility. And there's also clearly biblical qualifications for this, too. So we haven't just made up this elders, elder deacon structure. This is straight out of the Bible. Uh, so I just want to read the qualifications uh, for deacon out of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
it really uh, it starts in the beginning of the chapter. It talks about qualifications for elders, for pastors. And then it starts in verse 8. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, those are the qualifications for deacons. That's a high standard. And we have, uh, we have walked through the qualifications with, with Hal well, and we have tested him. Uh, it was uh, several months ago we asked him to help us with the structure of our volunteers and as a volunteer uh, coordinator because it was a need that, that had to be filled. And, and Hal has some experience, a lot of experience with organizational structures anyway, and he's a faithful man who we thought met these qualifications anyway. So we asked him to do it, and he's been doing it joyfully and with a, a great heart. And we just walked through this in, in the 9 a.m. service, and you see him up here talking again. And he, he, I don't know if you could tell from where you're at, but I could see the emotion uh, in, his, in his voice and in his eyes. And He loves our church, and he loves our Lord Jesus. Um, Hal is an incredible man, and uh, his family, Blair, and the kids, uh, they all serve every week. And they, they love our Lord, and they love you. Uh, whether you know them personally or not, you are being served by them now. And so uh, it's, it's my privilege, really, to, uh, and, and our privilege to recognize Hal as a deacon. He's been serving that way already, and now he just has the office of deacon. And so uh, I want to pray for you, and then we'll, we'll continue with our service. Father, we just uh, we praise you, Lord, for for who you are. That you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And uh, Father, you have uh, given us your Spirit uh, to help us uh, obey and to follow you. And Father, thank you that you have brought Hal from death to life. Uh, there was a time in his life he did not love you, and you brought him to the point where he is a mature man in the faith in you, uh, where he meets these qualifications as a deacon. Um, Father, we just pray for him and his family as this can be a challenging time with uh, four children, one on the way to college, and uh, a deacon role is a, is a large role, takes a lot of responsibility, more than uh, probably most people here even recognize, but he has that, four children and a, and a wife. It's a lot to balance. God, I pray that you would give him um, just wisdom, give him precious time with you and in, in your word that he would abide in you and God I, I just thank you for him Father thank you for the man he is and for the family that he has as well Father we, we love him and we desire to serve him as well Father in Jesus name Amen 